Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Did you hear that, Andrew? All right. <laughs> well, um, in here in just a minute, we'll jump in to an area that we've been talking about in all the sermons, but this is the big one, the gospel and the atonement and, and all that kind of stuff and, and how you are basically saved, how you can go to heaven when you die and all that. But first, a couple things. Um, we were supposed to have it in the bulletin this weekend, but Paula was out, and so we weren't able to get it in. But if you have any desire, um, and we pray you do, to serve with the security team or as a greeter or something like that, help us out. That way there will be a thing in the bulletin next weekend that you can sign up for, and we would appreciate that. Um, Megan is not here this morning. She is, as we speak, about eight minutes from uh, taking off and headed toward Denver via Charlotte for a staff retreat uh, for the next week. And so, but her job is going well, and um, I think that uh, based upon this morning, when she left about 7 o'clock this morning, on her response, she's going to miss her puppies more than me. Um, what can you do? The, uh, speaking of the puppies, uh, she, um, she realized yesterday morning that um, she did not have a really nice winter coat, a really good winter coat, and it's going to be like 40 degrees in Denver this week when she's, she's there. And Megan gets cold if it's 80 degrees, so she went to Huntington and yesterday to shop for a coat, and she left the puppies with me. Now, typically, this is how this works. See, this is how this broke down. This is how I got conned into this. Husbands, listen, you pay attention, okay? If and when you become empty nesters, wives, give yourselves a little bit before you're like, I need something to cuddle because you don't want a puppy. Now, so because, you know, Megan had this incredible year where she got her master's degree. She broke fundraising records at KCU. And, you know, then she got this new job with Solomon Foundation. And uh, her birthday was coming up. And so it's like, well, what do you want? You know, you've had a great year. What do you want? Don't ask that either. Just go get something. Because I want puppies. So she picked out two puppies. One of them is a mini golden doodle. And she's a good girl. Pretty well behaved for a puppy. Doesn't always hit the pad, if you know what I'm saying, but pretty good puppy. The other one is what's called a dorky. Now, I did not know this existed. A dorky is part dash hound, part yorkie. So, now, here is why I allowed my wife to get a dorky. Insufficient research. Here's the thing about dorkies. They are anxious and they will chew on everything, but they hate to be left alone. And they throw fits. I can't leave him in the house, he'll chew everything up. I can't leave him on the back deck in his little, what we call, playpen, it's a cage, but you know, in his playpen back there, because he yaps so loudly you can hear him in New Boston. 
And it's just not fair to put the neighbors through all that, you know. So every time we go to service, we have dog sitters. The dog sitter is Megan's dad. Uh, her dad had a dog for 14 years and had to put him down recently, and so he's happy to dog sit. But typically, Megan takes the dogs to her dad, and I don't have to mess with driving, you know, on top of driving through New Boston, driving with two puppies in the car. But yesterday, about 4.30, I texted Megan and I said, you going to make it? Uh, no, I lost track of time. I'm running late. I said, well, one, that means i got to take the dogs, and two, that better be a heck of a coat. So I'm taking the dogs. I've got them in the seat next to me. The dorky's actually lying still. I'm going about 70-ish down the highway. And all of a sudden, the mini golden doodle decided that it wanted to look out my window. So it put its entire body right here while going 70 miles an hour. So I let my wife know that I loved her. I wanted her to have safe travels. I'd ask that you pray for her, her week. But that if she comes home and those dogs are on Craigslist, that's her fault. Um, also wanted to let you know, because he wanted me to let you know, um, this past week I got a text message from Pat Apel. Um, as you know, Pat has been a faithful member here at Christ Community Church since the late 90s, since he moved back here from the south. And Pat has been a trustee here at the church for a very long time. If you don't know what that is, we have three trustees. They oversee all the money and all the property and all other kind of stuff. Dad is one, Norm Campbell's another, and Pat Apel's the, the third. And um, so Pat's been... Um, you know, a trustee for a long time, a leader here at the church, had taught the men's Bible study, led the men's Bible study for many years, but he'd been having a lot of physical problems, and finally his children said, look, you got you to live with one of us, and um, so he chose to live with his son Jeep in Asheville, and he, he texted me, he said he wanted the church to know, he got moved in, everything is fine, and he's still, on Saturday nights, he still watches the live feed for the sermons, um, he congratulated me on the job I did on baptism. He didn't say anything about dad's sermon. Um, but anyway, Pat wanted to let you know that everything is good. All righty. The atonement, the at-one-ment. How do we go from being sinners who are rebels against God and justly condemned to an eternity away from God to saved and assured of an eternity with God. How does that work? Well, there was no real debate about this in the early church. In fact, there's a book out there you can read written by a former professor at Drew University, uh, Thomas Oden, wrote a book called The Justification Reader, where he showed that the church fathers had, all had the same view of how one becomes saved. But over the years, some people did start to question things and, and throw kind of monkey wrenches into the understanding. One of those guys is a guy named Anselm. Now, you don't need to know who that is other than you may be interested to know that Anselm um, is, was C.S. Lewis's favorite author. So C.S. Lewis, if you read C.S. Lewis's books, he gets a lot from Anselm. And one of the things that Anselm threw into this is what you see in, how many of you have read the book? I know I've asked you before, or at least seen the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
right? Yeah. Luann read it to me when I was a kid. I read it to Jackson when he was a kid. And in that, you'll remember that one of the characters sins and now, according to the story, belongs to the witch who is the Satan figure. And that was Anselm's view, is that when we sin, we have sold ourselves over to Satan. And Satan is our Lord, and Christ redeems us from being Satan's property. Almost like, you know, we've pawned ourselves, and Jesus has come in and kind of redeemed the pawn and back, given it back to us. That's based on a couple of misreadings of Scripture. That's, that's not the way it works. If you sin, you do not sell yourself to Satan. If you sin, you simply rebel against God and against God only. This is why, when if you remember the story of David, you know, you've got David, and he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and he gets her pregnant, and so to cover it up, he basically orders a hit out on Uriah the Hittite, and then Nathan the prophet is sent by God to confront him, which, by the way, Nathan would probably have been shaking in his boots because the king could have just ordered him killed. But Nathan comes in and says, you know, you have done this, and David's response to his credit, he repents and he says, against you, Lord, alone have I sinned. Sin is always about God. It's always about God. Now, we'll talk more about that whole Satan stuff here in a couple of weeks when I talk about angels and demons and, and Satan and all that kind of stuff. But for a long time, the Catholic Church, once it became the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church was just a church until Constantine became emperor and he made Christianity the de facto religion of the Roman Empire. Now, before that, the church was this thing that was almost in hiding a lot of the times, would be persecuted by the Romans a lot of the times, and all of a sudden, now that the emperor's a Christian, well, now everybody wants to be a Christian, especially if you want to buddy up with the emperor. And so it used to be if you came from a wealthy Roman family, your son was either going to be a politician, run the family business, or a general in the army. But then when Constantine became a Christian, suddenly it was you had a bunch of people who were about as Christian as, a, as Harvey Weinstein who were becoming bishops. That was bad news. And so things got muddled after that for a long time. Along comes a guy named Martin Luther. Now, I'm not going to give you a history lecture, but trust me, this is interesting. Even if you find church history boring, Martin Luther was anything but boring. He was brilliant, and the polite way we're saying is he was eccentric. Luther who started what we call the Protestant Reformation, basically were returned to the Bible, a fight to return to Scripture. So Luther had no plans to become a theologian or a priest or any of that kind of stuff. He wanted to be a lawyer. His parents wanted him to be a lawyer. And one day he was riding to university, and a lightning storm hits. And Luther's kind of looking around saying, this is not a good time to be out. Especially when a lightning bolt strikes right by his carriage. And the lightning's just hitting everywhere. And so Luther, after soiling himself, I'm sure, and sweating it out, 
gets down on his knees and prays to God and says, God, if you get me out of this, if you save my life, I will dedicate my life to you. And at that time, that meant if you dedicated your life to God, you only had two options, be a priest or a monk. So that's what he did. And he got trained. Except unlike a lot of other people at that time, he was not jockeying for some kind of you know, political power position with, within the Vatican, within the Catholic Church. Luther was the real deal. And so Luther began to study and study hard. And when he got to Romans and Galatians studying Paul's letters, he said, wait a minute, the church is telling people They've got to go to church and take communion to be saved. They have to go to confession to be saved. And even then, they go to this place called purgatory where you burn off your remaining sins. And Luther's going, I'm reading the Bible in Greek, and it ain't in here. None of that's in here. And then what really broke the camel's back was that some people who wanted to suck up to the pope decided that a good fundraising idea would be to go around and sell what they called indulgences. So basically what you would do is you'd go knock on somebody's door. Hey, I understand your granny died. Well, you know granny's in purgatory. But for a love offering of $150, we can get her out three months early. Now that ticked Luther off. And so, he decided to post the 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg. Now, if you've ever seen a movie or a TV show about Luther, when he, you know, puts his 95 Theses or his 95 arguments on the church door, they always make it to be this real dramatic thing. It wasn't. That's how you posted you wanted to debate in the academy at that time. So, it's just like going to a university cork board today and just putting up looking for debate on this topic and this topic and this topic. Luther wasn't looking for a fight. He just wanted to, he wanted some clarity and he wanted somebody to defend because can you defend the church's position on this? Because I'm looking at the Bible and I can't defend it. Now, of course, Luther is put on trial. The Vatican actually put a, a hit out on him. Believe it or not, the Pope hired bounty hunters to go try to kill Luther, he was on the run. But he stuck to his guns. Now, there's a great little book that I read when I was in seminary, because I wrote my senior, my thesis for a master's degree on Luther. And there's a great book called Luther, Man Between God and Devil. And don't ask me to spell the author's name. His name is Heike Obermann, professor at Arizona State. And I was reading this for the first time in the library at Abilene Christian University, and I started laughing out loud. And I was probably the first person ever to laugh in a seminary library ever. You don't laugh in seminary, right? There's no crying in baseball. There's no laughing in seminary. I couldn't help myself. You see, Luther was eccentric. He was genius, but he was eccentric. So, for example, and I'm sure I told this last night, and I'm, I'm sure my mom's mad at me, but I'm going to say it again. Luther would have visions of the devil. He believed that the devil would come to him and taunt him and challenge him. Luther responded in a variety of ways, one of which was 
Because you can remember, there are no running toilets at this time. You wanted to use the bathroom in the night, you had what's called a chamber pot. Luther would throw the chamber pot at the devil. How would you like to have been the maid that next day? Or, and this was my favorite, I was reading and Luther was writing in his own diary, and he said, the prince of darkness, that evil one Satan, appeared to me again last night. So I ferociously broke wind in his direction. And I remember reading that, I said, did I just read Luther farted at the devil? <laughs> That's what I read. He was an interesting dude. But at the end of the day, he was still brilliant. And when he worked his way through the New Testament, he came back, and part of his 95 thesis, what he wanted to debate the church on was this. He says, look, the way I'm reading the Bible, it's this simple. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ, two things happen. And the church has nothing to do with it. The first is, all your sins are paid for on the cross. No purgatory. No confession. All your sins are paid for on the cross. Once and for all. Two. Jesus Christ takes his perfect life and he gives it to you. It is now yours to be judged by. Well, no one really took him up on that. But as eccentric as he was, the sucker was right. And the first part I'll hit on Real quickly, but the second part is the one people really struggle with. That whole, I get Christ's righteousness thing. Now, understand something. This is why I always have to, this is a little segue. I hear this all the time. I, please, I never want to hear it from you. The Bible is very clear about a couple things. One of them is this. No one goes to heaven. No one receives an eternal life with God unless they have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here's the problem with our culture, and I hear Christians do this all the time. They say, yes, I believe that, but... And the buts come in, and it works both ways. One is... You know, yeah, my buddy, he's not a Christian. He's actually kind of tinkering around with some Buddhism right now. But he's a really good guy. I'm, can you somebody show me the line where Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, unless they're really nice guys. And the other one way is to think they can't be a Christian because I don't like them. Folks, you need to understand something very, very clearly. If you have faith in Jesus Christ and you die before he returns and you go to heaven, you'll be in heaven with some grumpy people you didn't like in life and some of the people you thought were a heck of a good people will be in hell. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it. It's a perfect, fine question. He said, then why, why are so many Christians unlikable? I, I understand that. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it, though. I am a fan of Lewis's writing. Lewis, you know, 
responded to a question one time. Why do I meet so many grumpy Christians? C.S. Lewis's response was, ma'am, the question is not why they are a grumpy Christian. The question is how much grumpier would they be if they weren't Christians? I think he's got a point. Jesus Christ himself has made it very clear that he's, his way, his life, his death is it. There is no plan B. Christians used to know this a lot better because we used to memorize verses. And of course, the one that every Christian had memorized when I was growing up was, and I can probably, at least half of you can repeat this back to me, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, his only begotten son, right? You, you know it. It used to be everywhere. You know, when I was a kid growing up, and we'd get to go to like a Reds game, which was, which was great, and Johnny Bench was still playing at that time when I was real little. It was fantastic. And you go to a Reds game, and somebody always out in the outfield, what would you see? Somebody would drape a sheet, and it would have John 3.16. It was everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. I think they banned those from ballparks now, probably. But I actually heard one time a fairly mature, intelligent person ask me. Sometimes when I'm watching ESPN classics and they're playing old games, I see this thing out in the outfield that says John 3 colon 1 6. What's that? People don't even know it anymore. And the problem, here's the one problem with that is, even those who know it don't know the context. They don't read the whole thing. You got to read 316 through 318, which in the NLT goes like this. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, this is 17, not to judge the world but to save the world through him. There is no judgment, that in mind, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. No wiggle room there. Absolutely no wiggle room. Another verse people love to quote, God is love. Yes. But that's not the only verse. God is also just. The first part is one I've hit on a lot, one I hope you know. When Christ went to the cross and he screamed, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? That was more painful to Christ than any of the physical sufferings that he went through, the torture and the death. At that time, the son, as a man, was ripped apart from the Father and the Spirit for the only time in eternity to take the punishment for your sins upon himself. 
Now, here in about three or four weeks, I'm going to talk about what happens when you die and where did Jesus go. Jesus, a lot of people like to quote uh, catechisms that say Jesus descended into hell. He did not. But what Jesus did do was he absorbed hell. That's one. That's one. And if you do not place faith in Jesus Christ, you pay for that sin. Either Jesus pays for it or you pay for it. Buddha ain't going to pay for it. Muhammad's not going to pay for it. Only Jesus can pay for it. So whether you're a good person, a grumpy person, the test is faith in Jesus Christ because your sins have to be paid for or you will not gain access to the heavenly throne. That's just the way that works. And Jesus himself makes it clear that there was no other option. There was no other way to do it. God is just. God's the judge. He, he makes the calls. And he said this is the only way to make things right. Jesus himself says in Luke 24, 25 through 27. This is after his resurrection. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people. Now, the New Living Translation is being kind there, and sometimes people have a hard time wrapping their mind around this, but I promise you I can show it in the Greek. Do you know what Jesus just said there? You idiots. Yes, Jesus does use that kind of language at times. You idiots. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the Scriptures. Wasn't it clearly prophesied that the Messiah would have to, have to, suffer all these things before entering his glory. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Book of Hebrews says the same thing. There is no other way to have your sins paid for. There is no purgatory. Dad will get mad at me for this. Doesn't matter how big of a check you write to the church. It's, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? And if you do, Jesus paid the penalty for your sins. The ones you have committed, are committing, will commit. It's that simple. Now, you know that. I preach that almost every week. That's the big thing about the gospel. Only faith in Jesus Christ. But there's a flip side to that, and that we need to talk about for just a few minutes, because this is where things get murky. And I know a lot of you, I can tell you, hey, tell me the gospel, and a number of you can explain it very, very well. But this one, emotionally, psychologically, Christians struggle with. Because the atonement involves two aspects, as I said, Christ's obedience for us and his sufferings for us. Now, why was his obedience so important? It was not just so that he would be the perfect sacrifice. That was part of it, but that ain't all of it. I've got a little quote in there from Dr. Wayne Grudem. Now, if you don't know who that is, and most of you probably don't, uh, Dr. Grudem is an incredibly intelligent man. I got to spend a week um, at a retreat with him once in Hawaii. Um, you heard me. Um, I suffer for the Lord. Um, 
Dr. Grudem, Harvard graduate, PhD from Cambridge University. Wonderful guy, struggling with Parkinson's right now. But Dr. Grudem wrote this. If Christ had only earned forgiveness of our sins for us, then we would not merit heaven. Our guilt would have been removed, but we would simply be in the position of Adam and Eve before they had done anything good or bad, before they had passed a time of probation successfully. To be established in righteousness forever and to have their fellowship with God made sure forever, Adam and Eve had to obey God perfectly over a period of time. Then God would have looked on their faithful obedience with pleasure and delight, and they would have lived with him in fellowship forever. For this reason, Christ had to live a life of perfect obedience to God in order to earn righteousness for us. He had to obey the law his entire life on our behalf so that the positive merits of his perfect obedience would be counted for us. And you can look that up, Philippians 3.9, Romans 5.19, and over and over and over again. If you read through the Bible, and I hope you are, especially Paul's letters, Paul says again and again and again and again and again that those of us who have faith in Christ are in Christ. In Christ, in him, in Christ, in him, in the body. I'll hear about this from mom later, but if, if you had a drinking game based on how many times Christ, Paul says in him or in Christ, you'd get alcohol poisoning. It's over and over and over again. And the reason is Paul is hammering it home. That when you came to faith in Christ, not only were your sins forgiven, you became one with Christ. So that his life becomes yours. To be in Christ. See, people struggle with this. You know, we, so many Christians, Protestant Christians, still have, and I'm not trying to pick on my Catholic buddies, but it's just, you know, we still have this Catholic thing where we think that if we have like an unconfessed sin or something like that, we lose our salvation. Not true. Not true. got to quit that. What does Christ say on the cross? It has begun? No, 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 no. It is finished. Christ's life becomes yours. And if you have true faith, you don't lose that. Yeah, you'll screw up. We'll talk more about that in a second, but that, that's not the point. But Christians struggle with this so badly. I was trying to explain this once to a guy who was raised um, in Nazarene faith. And, and he, he was a direct fella. And he asked me once, he said, okay, let me get this straight. Because I'd I, I run through this. And he goes, so, now, again, this is the third time I'm going to get in trouble with my mother. But this is actually not my illustration. This is a true story. He said, so, let me ask you this. I'm a Christian. I place my faith in Christ. They place me in hospice care. I'm lying there. I know I'm dying. 
I don't know how much longer I've got. My wife, about to become a widow, is there. She's holding my hand. And I look over, and with my last thought on earth, I see a really hot nurse and think, whoa. And then I die. What happens to me? I said two things. One, if you really did place your faith in Christ, you're forgiven and you still be judged by Jesus' life. Number two, if your wife saw it, she's not going to mourn you as heavily. That's it. That's it. I am telling you, if me being me is driving in the left lane, which is mine, and someone is in front of me with their blinker on to turn left for five miles, and I'm sitting there going, you got to be kidding me why do these people what why 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 you shouldn't even be driving and, I, and all of a sudden a truck vroom, runs me over what happens i go to heaven and i'm judged by jesus life praise god do you really want to be judged by your actions i don't you know, I've told you this before. This was, you know, th this is an honest debate we had in seminary. I was not, this was not a joke. I am serious. We had this debate once in class with one of my professors, Randy Harris. Is it possible for a Christian to go one day without sinning? I mean, if you slept really late. And our response was no. And as I told you a couple weeks ago, now I'm convinced I even sin in my sleep because those stupid puppies get on the bed. You know, about 6, 6.30, they want fed. They want food and water, of all things. And, they, and the mini golden doodle comes up and gets in my face and takes its oversized paw and goes, I thought I was in bed with Freddy Krueger for three seconds. Those things got claws, man. I thought I was bleeding. And I came out of his sleep thinking things no pastor should think. Now, I am not saying that, therefore, do whatever you want. Because Paul also says that if you have the attitude, I'll just do whatever I want, he questions whether you had faith, real faith in the first place. Yes, a Christian who has received the Holy Spirit should over time grow and have a completely different relationship with their sin. They should find it abhorrent. They should hate it. They should pray about it. They should flee from it. They should do whatever practical things they need to do to keep themselves away from that temptation. But you still will sin. You just will. And do not fall into the idea that because I screwed up, I'm now in big trouble again. I've had those people, I've seen them in churches that want to get baptized every week because every week they realize they've sinned. It was like, well, no joke. 
but you don't need to get dunked again. You're denying the grace you received in the first place. And you wouldn't feel bad about it if you didn't have a new relationship with God and sin. And the more you understand this, that Jesus loves you so much that not only did he die for you, he suffered his entire life for you. Hebrews makes this clear, that Jesus did not just suffer on the cross. He suffered his entire life, tested, tempted, tempted in every way, Scripture says that we are. He overcame it, but it was still suffering. He was gossiped about. He was abandoned. When he preached the first sermon in his home church, I mean, you guys get mad at me. They tried to throw him off a cliff. That's never happened to me. I get hecklers, but not death threats. He suffered his entire life so that he could say, I have faced every single temptation. I have overcome it, and now it's yours. Because we are in Christ. I like the way I have disagreements with the author, but a guy named Donald Miller put it this way. I, I like this. It's not perfect, but it's, it's close. He said, you got to understand this, this, what theologians call imputed righteousness, Christ's given righteousness to us. He says, it's as if Jesus takes us and pulls us to himself so closely that when the Father looks at us, he only sees the Son. Praise God. This is what it's meant. I know that I'm a broken record on this, but I have found that if you're not a broken record, it just, just goes into the ether. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a Bible verse that you should all have memorized, underlined, everything, because in that verse, Paul has just put it all together. For he, talking about the Father, made him Christ who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that, here it comes, in him we become the righteousness of God. If you, and I've known Christians who have done this, I used to work a lot with people when I was doing revolution. I worked a lot through the week a lot of phone calls in the middle of the night from people struggling with addiction. And so somebody screws up. Typically, it's not uncommon if they get into a relationship with another addict. Sometimes that goes sideways. And they feel like this big when they slip up. And sometimes they use that as an excuse to go deeper, or it drives them deeper. And what I try to tell them is this. God has not abandoned you. That's not God doing that to you. If you have faith, your sins are paid for, you are judged by the life of Christ. That's not God talking to you, that's Satan. 
the reason I want you to know this so well is, trust me, Satan will do this to you when you sin and if you feel just horribly guilty, even after you pray for forgiveness and go into this woe is me and you're just spiritually, you're just curled up in the fetal position doing nothing. Satan won. And what you need to say back to Satan is, in him I have become the righteousness of God. Go away. Because you've got work to do. Have you had that struggle? I have. I was actually dumb enough to have in the back of my mind thinking that once I got ordained and had my master's degree and and all kinds of stuff, and heck, I got baptized in the Jordan River. You know, I would just, all my thoughts would be focused on the Lord. And I would be so righteous, I would just darn near float. You know, and I would come to the pulpit. It would be like angels going, oh, yeah. Didn't happen that way. Won't happen that way. I struggle, you struggle, hopefully it gets a little better over time, but no matter what, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are in him, and you have become the righteousness of God, and don't let Satan or anyone else tell you any differently. don't. And if you have not placed faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that you will. And I hope and pray that your view of God is a clear and true one, not one that has been distorted by sin, by bad preaching, God loves you, and he wants you to be saved. That's the whole point of the parable of the prodigal son. His kid says to him, give me half my inheritance, which you only got at death. So he's basically wishing death on his father, so I can go live it up when I'm young. And he goes and he parties. He parties with prostitutes. He gambles. His money's gone. He's a Jew working at a pig farm. He comes home, he says, I will beg my father for forgiveness and maybe he'll give me a job. And before he gets a word out of his mouth, his father runs to him and says, let's celebrate your home. If your view of God is anything but that, you got it wrong. Luther said, here I stand. I can do no other. Help me, God because he understood the truth. I hope you do too. And for those of you who are watching online or whatever, I'm going to close with this. If you've never read the parable of the prodigal son, let me put it this way. I've told this story once before, but 
If you're not a Christian, I'd like you to hear it. This story was told by a missionary who was down in Brazil. And he began to see posters all over town. And he, it fascinated him, and he tried to get a handle on it. And finally, he met another missionary who knew the story. In a little village outside of the city, there was a mother and a daughter. And the daughter didn't want to live in the little city. She wanted to run off. She wanted to chase fame and fortune. And so she did. One day as a teenager, much like I did, she took off. But she found that without a community around to support her, things could go sideways quick. And she ended up having to sell herself into prostitution to eat. One day, though, the missionary knew how the story ended. She walked out of a bathroom, a public bathroom, to clean herself up. She was ashamed, verge of tears. And she looked up, and she saw a little flyer in the bathroom. It had her name on it. It had been printed by her mother and put up all over the city her mother's last few pennies. And it said simply, I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you think you are. I love you. Come home. That's the God we worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, for his sacrifice for his righteousness that you freely give to us, that there is no judgment, as your son said, for those who have faith in him, no judgment. Pray that every Christian knows this so that the devil does not get a foothold in their life and in their service. I pray that people understand how gracious you have been and will accept that grace We'll love you more for that grace, worship you more for that grace, serve you more for that grace, sin less because of that grace. They will just keep their eyes on you, knowing that we will fail, but our sins are forgiven, and our righteousness is in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. God goes with you. I got to go home, do homework, feed dogs, watch the Bengals lose. See ya. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.